Perceptions Podcast. The West cannot comprehend how its values framework, a liberal, secular, pluralistic framework, is not enthusiastically espoused by all who come to its shores. Imagine a DeLorean time machine car appears outside your house this year and you get in and you're told that you're going to 2052 to see what the future looks like. You arrive and you see what it actually looks like 30 years from now. Do you want that future? What would you do to get there or to get away from that future? That's what we're going to find out. So how about this? Every Sunday morning since we moved into this house, every Sunday morning for almost six years, we hear the clink-clank sound of swords clashing. We hear the roars and shouts of warriors in hand-to-hand combat. And as we go out the door to church, every Sunday morning, there they are on the school oval across the road, knights and knaves, foot soldiers and the occasional damsel, reenacting some ancient battle dressed in medieval garb, swinging swords and maces, holding pikes and helmets, steel on steel, modern mortals in non-mortal combat, every Sunday. Well, almost every Sunday, during the COVID pandemic, it went quiet, very quiet. Given how committed they are to their medieval manner, I half suspected they had all died horribly of the Black Death or some variant of a 14th century ailment. But no, it was merely lockdown that kept them away. Once that was over, the banished returned and the clink, clank and roars and shouts returned with them. It seems it's hard to suppress our intrigue with war or our fear of it. It was going to take something particularly awful to keep the events of Ukraine and Russia off the front pages. And now we have it, Israel and Hamas. The horrific terrorist attacks by Hamas on innocent Israelis and the reprisals in Gaza by the Israeli army as it vows to wipe Hamas off the map has also wiped Ukraine and Russia off the front pages. And thanks to the technology of not only video and photography, but of body cam worn by Hamas members, we can see the full terror of war up front. The clink clank, so to speak, the killing, the bullets, the blood, the screams. The cheers. While there is conjecture around who said it, and whether it's a paraphrase, the saying, you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you, gets trotted out from time to time, and at times such as this. But I beg to differ. I believe we are exceptionally interested in war. Interested enough for it to make the front page of our online newspapers. Interested enough for us to go onto YouTube to see videos uploaded that day from the battlefield. Interested enough to talk about it, and from what we've seen in the West in recent weeks since the atrocities began, interested enough to have our own pitched battles around the rights and wrongs of each side. Because here's what this conflict has thrown up. It's thrown up the fact that in the West, while we have to resort to medieval war games on the school oval to even get near the action, 
The culture war that has so taken a grip of us, and which we are increasingly interested in also, has exposed a growing conflict in the West, including here in Australia, around what happens in real war. Simply put, having just come off a referendum question that revealed a harsh division in Australia that in some way aligned with the culture war, so too this impending war in the Middle East. Deep divisions within our society are being revealed between those who support Israel's right to defend itself as a minority people in the midst of a vast swathe of enemies, and those who see Israel as receiving the just reward for its illegal occupation of foreign lands for decades. And as I read the commentary around the issue, there's a definite sense that the division is part of a wider cultural division, the culture war that is also interested in us, and that we too are interested in. When it comes to Israel and the Palestinian territories, the general consensus of the past, external to both of the actual parties of course, is that a two-state solution is the key, a way of keeping the tensions at minimum, but keeping the people holding those tensions apart as well. How do we keep the clink-clank of hand-to-hand -hand combat at bay? How do we stop the division that has resulted in so much bloodshed? That may end up a less complex matter in the long term than the deep divisions in the West that this matter has opened up, or rather revealed. Simply put, the Israel-Palestinian conflict is exposing equally deep divisions among those for whom actual war is, in every sense of the word, foreign to them, and that means us here in the West. So what's going on? The first thing to say is that the West cannot comprehend how its values framework, a liberal, secular, pluralistic framework, is not enthusiastically espoused by all who come to its shores. Hence a few weeks ago when in Sydney I undertook my usual habit upon arrival of heading down to the Opera House to buy an ice cream and walk around that modernist marvel 50 years old this year, I couldn't understand how just two days before that terrible things had happened. The Opera House is a homage to all things cultural, modern, sensible and Western, a sign of Australia's progressive thinking. Yet on the very steps of that grand building, just two days prior to my arrival, there were voices calling out, gas the Jews. Not, admittedly, from everyone within a Palestinian protest on the steps of the Opera House, but a significant enough event to make the international news. A clash of two cultures indeed. Here is Australia, a modern nation to which people from all corners of the globe have found refuge from supposedly foreign conflicts, but the very discussion around these foreign conflicts in our own Western nations is raising the spectre that we are deeply divided ourselves. There's a lot of hand-to-hand clink-clank combat going on, even if it's merely words and opinions. And it's playing out in that one place in Western society in which the clink-clank of hand-to-hand -hand combat, actual wars, as well as the clink-clank of the culture wars, are played out on celluloid, Hollywood. 
So, as reported in the Wall Street Journal, there's a division in Tinseltown, a city and indeed an industry, with significant Jewish history, writers, directors, comedians, stars. In contrast to the noise created over other national and international outrages, a Hollywood united over the screenwriters' demands for more contract protections from studios is now showing up deep divisions over this issue around Israel and Palestine. As the Wall Street Journal reports, when terrorists invaded Israel to murder, rape and kidnap Jews, the Guild stayed silent, according to dozens of prominent Hollywood figures, including Jerry Seinfeld and Sasha Baron Cohen. That's what they wrote in an open letter published on Medium last week. Meanwhile, comedian Dave Chappelle, who has been on the more conservative side of the culture wars when it comes to issues around gender and sexuality, was heckled and booed when he suggested that while the October 7 attacks on Israel were wrong, that was no excuse for cutting off water, electricity, food and medical supplies to innocent civilians. The Wall Street Journal goes on to describe Chappelle's gig. Chappelle's show attendees said the crowd appeared mostly supportive of his comments and many shouted free Palestine, the paper said. A small faction of attendees got up and left the show, while a handful shouted, what about Hamas? Famed Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright David Mamet, who is Jewish, asked why his beloved Democrat party in the US is equivocating on the issue, observing, with all the eloquence he undoubtedly has, that Jews are the, as he put it, battered housewife of the West. Yet politics is downstream of culture, yes? Writing in online journal Unheard, former war correspondent Aris Racinos said that what we are experiencing in an increasingly uncomfortable way is the conflicts of the world outside us being filtered through what he calls the distorting mirror of our social media fueled culture war. He makes this telling statement. The effects of the aforementioned media fueled culture war are remarkable, though there is no obvious link between any of these matters, he says then I could ascertain with 99% accuracy your opinions on a distant ethnic conflict in the Middle East. I think Racinos is onto something. Indeed, his next observation is even more pointed. Such is the power of tribalism, he says, though there is no essential reason why the dividing lines should have been drawn in this particular way, the poles could just as easily be reversed, and indeed once they were. What he means is, it pays to know your history, which, sadly in the West, we don't. So he observes that when the State of Israel was being founded, there was right-wing suspicion of the move, while the cause itself, a homeland for the Jews, was taken up as a left-wing cause. Yet here we are today. The irony, of course, is that the liberal secular West has fueled a deep tribalism within its own framework that it assumed would be laundered out of any migrant communities who landed on our western shores. Okay, it might take one or two generations for you to think like us, but eventually you will be won over by our superior way of life. Oh, and our enticing technologies. And then we see body cam pictures of old women being shot in the head and the gruesome images being uploaded onto their own WhatsApp pages by those who killed her. Now. None of this is to say that migrant communities are even remotely like this. 
They're clearly not. The vast majority just want to get on with their lives in peace. But that's not the same as saying they want to be assimilated into an amorphous Western ideal, whatever that is. It's simply to point out the naivety bordering on arrogance in the secular West that our post-religious, highly individualistic framework is so compelling, so enticing, so morally better that new communities arriving on our shores are bound to sign up in no time. Yet it doesn't take long for me in conversation with a Muslim or Sikh Uber driver for them to ask me why people in the West are so angst-ridden when they have everything, why they work to the point of exhaustion, and why their families and religious lives are so thin. Besides, as we are finding out in this conflict, and was seen in the referendum recently, there is no common Western ideal. That's the point of all the clink-clank, the phony war we are experiencing. And, ironically, in this most self-declared fluid of ages, it's all becoming increasingly binary. The Australian newspaper's editor-at-large, Paul Kelly, states that the referendum revealed deep divisions in Australia beyond the issues surrounding the voice, but which encapsulated it nevertheless. Kelly says this, The divisions in Australian society reflect the crisis of Western liberalism, the central idea that has held democracies together as functioning entities. And he points out the binary divisions. Listen to this. The mantra from the populist conservatives on the right is that liberalism is a prescription for weakness, cultural and religious decline, faltering economic performance, the erosion of national willpower, and the alienation of much of the hard-working backbone of the country. And then, on the left, he says, the epic journey has been from liberalism to progressivism. The essence of progressivism is the demand for a new moral order and that people change their values and the way they live to deliver the utopia of clean energy, racial justice, atonement for colonial history, honouring diversity and securing sexual and gender justice. Clink clank anyone? That's the culture war in a nutshell. And these things are not without their contradictions. If, for the left, the Palestinian cause epitomises the struggle towards a more progressive future, then someone forgot to inform some of the more radical types who cheered Hamas. Speaking at a rally in London earlier this year, one of the main speakers at the rally following October 7, Lukman Mukim, had this to say, Radical change will come when Islam knocks down secularism and brings an end to the Western world order. The UK will no longer be able to pump its liberal filth, its LGBT filth, its feminist filth, into the heart of the Muslim world. With friends like that, the Palestinians who just want to get on with their lives don't need more enemies than they already have. And such comments merely embolden a hard right that seeks a return to steely conservatism that is post-religious. As Ross Douthat once said in the New York Times, if you have a problem with the Christian alt-right, wait until you see the non-Christian alt-right. According to Australian pastor and cultural observer Mark Sayers, the post-Christian liberal frame wants the kingdom without the king, a human rights framework that was birthed out of a Christian worldview, a fact that atheist historian Tom Holland attests to, but without the pesky Christian bit attached. 
But I think there's an equal and opposite concern, a move towards what I would call Christendom without Christ, a return to the attitudes and lifestyles of the so-called glory days of the West. The 1950s, perhaps, when things were more certain, definitely more binary, but without the messy Jesus stuff to soften the edges. So on one side of the post-Christian divide, there are those who want progressive ideals without the accompanying and oh-so-necessary moral framework that the early church gifted to a hostile pagan culture, a framework that placed sex within safe relationships, that refused the right of power to have the final say, that highlighted forgiveness and the need to serve others. Such a progressive ideal does not exist, it's a chimera. But neither does its post-Christian conservative counterpart, which seems to want an ordered society, but it cannot brook difference. It champions obedience without heart change. It overlooks the fact that a bright, shiny suburb may hide a multitude of sins behind the curtains, just as it did in the past. A two-state solution for the culture wars seems just as necessary as a two-state solution for the Israelis and Palestinians, but seemingly it's just as unattainable. So where's it all headed? When it comes to the Israeli-Palestine solution, it would be nice to think it's headed towards the peace which so many world leaders are calling for. Yet that would seem to be a triumph of hope over experience. And the culture war that tracks with it, exacerbated as it is by a social media conflict, Paul Kelly, once again in The Australian, quotes the late great rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who said, when there is no shared morality, there is no society. None of that sounds good. None of it at all. Are we destined to be fighting forever, week in, week out, clink, clank, hand-to-hand combat, like so many medieval reenactors on the school oval? It sounds bleak, and perhaps it is. I think it will get bleaker in the West, and certainly in the Middle East, before it gets brighter. Though perhaps, let me leave you with this sliver of light. My mother went back to live in Northern Ireland in her 40s, before the Good Friday Peace Agreement. One of the features of the capital city of Northern Ireland, Belfast, is the so-called Peace Wall that keeps the Republican Catholics and Loyalist Protestants of that city apart. It's an ugly, binary admission that society is broken, a two-city solution if not a two-state one. Yet my mum, a Protestant, ended up in a church Bible study group, and it was led by a man with no hands who would turn the pages of his Bible as he read with the stumps that were left. Why no hands? Well, he had blown them off accidentally, as he, a Catholic man who was a member of the Irish Republican Army, had been making a bomb to destroy the lives of the others. Yet somehow, here he was now, the dividing wall of hostility broken down by not a two-state solution or even a shared morality, but by a common grace that he had found in the story of Jesus, the King of the Jews, who was, according to the Bible, Prince of Peace for the whole world. 
Turns out the man who said love your enemies was able to do so himself on the cross, even calling out for forgiveness for them as they committed the worst atrocity in history, killing their creator. Now you may not believe that to be true, but even historian Tom Holland finds it to be a compelling narrative that changed the world and made forgiveness not only possible, but also desirable. In our post-Christian West, we've looked everywhere else for a solution. Perhaps it's worth checking out that story again. Podcast.